In this episode of the Guidewire podcast, I get a chance to interview Jim and Audrey Larson, a father-daughter duo, one who's a physician and the other one who's a medical device engineer. Welcome to Guidewire, a direct line to medical device innovation. We are the boots on the ground inside of healthcare working to uncover and solve high-impact, unmet medical needs. Welcome to the Guidewire Podcast. My name is Devin Hubbard. I am your host. And today I am joined by two family members, both of whom I have known for a little while. Jim Larson is a physician here at UNC Healthcare. And Audrey Larson, her his daughter, uh, is a R&D engineer out at Galvanized Therapeutics in the Bay Area in California. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, thanks Devin. Devin. Yeah, awesome. Well, before we get into things, I kind of want to get the audience familiar with what each of you does. So, Audrey, I want to start with you. You've been in the medical device industry for a little while. I want to learn a little bit about how you got where you are and just tell us a little bit about yourself. So, I graduated UNC Biomedical Engineering just around five years ago, which is crazy. It's been that long already. And yeah, I was in a few classes with you in that program and um, had a really great sort of introduction into the medical device field through a a few different classes we took there and started off my career as a product development engineer for a contract manufacturer out in the Bay Area. So we essentially built products for other companies and the contract manufacturer is called Vention Medical at the time. They've since been bought, but they specialize in a lot of extruded tubing. So they did lots of different catheter devices. But the project I was on specifically was a implant, a neuromodulation implant that suppressed back pain. So I worked there for a little while and it was, yeah, it was really great experience. They kind of hire a lot of people just just fresh out of college and threw people onto the manufacturing line to help improve processes and things like that, which is really interesting. But even just from my experience in school, I'd always been more interested in the design side of things and kind of understanding the clinical applications of these products and sort of why, how the design decisions were made. And as a contract manufacturer, you get really insulated from that because the owners of products, they really don't want you to be involved in that side of things intentionally for business reasons. So I, I won't get into it too much, but I went to seek out some design positions and actually ended up pivoting for around two and a half years into more of a purely tech position at a very quintessentially Silicon Valley company that actually made artificially intelligent vending machines. So n- not medical device related, so I won't go into it, but got a lot of good experience with just product development in general and was actually the only, since graduating biomedical engineering, I sort of branded myself as a mechanical engineer just to kind of give myself a little bit more specialization, which is helpful. And so I was the me- only mechanical engineer with a bunch of software engineers at that company and kind of had a lot of interesting experience bringing up that product to market and going a few different places with that actually started with under 10 people at the company and grew to 200 people. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. That's it, a it big was change. Experience. It was a big change. <laughs> um, and then it eventually got acquired and then was kind of looking to get back into the medical device field. I was really happy with my design experience and I wanted to apply my background in medical devices and then like my solid experience in design and have since been working at Galvanized Therapeutics. So actually just 10 months now. So it's been under a year. But it's been really a kind of a perfect combination of those two things, medical device and design specifically. And um, Galvanize is actually part of like a suite of companies that's working on developing pulse electric field ablation devices for several different uh, clinical applications. So pulse electric field is kind of like a new ablation modality. And the companies that I'm working alongside, we have like a, a cardiac application to help treat arrhythmia with ablation. There's also a chronic bronchitis indication for another company. And then Galvanize is focused on um, 
oncology, so uh, cancer ablation. And so it, it's been a really, really neat uh, kind of experience working at that company, and it's been kind of a good fit. So you've been busy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> For, that's a short period of time to do all that stuff. I've got questions now that you've mentioned all that, but I want to get back to that in a minute. Jim, so you're a practicing physician, and I want to hear how you got where you are, and um, maybe even a little bit more about how you got plugged into Fast Tracks because we meet with you every week to talk through, <laughs> to throw our crazy ideas at you guys. So curious to hear your thoughts. The summary would be I'm a practicing emergency physician, but a little more background is um, I graduated with an engineering science degree way back in 1989 from the University of Florida because we didn't have biomedical engineering there back in the dark ages. <laughs> <laughs> but that was one way that you could do engineering and uh, combine it with some pre-med courses. And I loved it. I always tell everybody, my engineering education was way harder than medical school. I don't, don't tell the doctors I know that, but, uh, but it definitely challenged me in different ways. But uh, of course, love medical school, University of Florida, did an internship for a year till 1994. Um, in that year, Audrey Larson was born at University of Florida. Ah. Yeah. And then I just, I decided to do emergency medicine. So I did a residency in San Diego at UCSD. And then after that came to UNC as a faculty member in 1997. So quite a while ago. I've been involved with a lot of different things, uh, residency education, clinical direction, and uh, administrative direction as well. And I always had an interest in the engineering side, innovation and problem solving. As we mentioned before, the podcast started, my wife is also a design engineer. So every year, the BME students, the biomedical engineering students would look for advisors to help in the clinical area. And I always found that very fun and uh, engaging. So I did that for a number of years. COVID knocked that out in the past year. But I think with my involvement from that, you guys were looking for physicians who could get some input, ideas, and trying to solve problems. So I joined the clinical advisor group six months ago. So, and it's been a great experience. Yeah. I know that Alan and company were looking for folks. And when they mentioned your name, I was like, yes, you have to get Jim. And I even told him that for the world to know now that you were the, you and your wife were keynote address, or you gave the keynote address at a symposium a few years ago, which was fun. I enjoyed that because it was sort of like the clinician with an, in, the device designer. I thought it was really cool. That was a lot of fun. And, you know, it's just another opportunity for me to be showed up by my wife, which happens <laughs> frequently. And it's just another another opportunity. And right before we started recording, we were talking about the next, you know, we got to get you guys back in the podcast booth so that we can get Cinnamon on here and we can get sort of like varying perspectives on people in different places in their medical device design career so that we can kind of hear the whole spectrum. But well, that's awesome. And, and I know that you've been a fantastic contributor. Um, we frequently talk about how valuable it is to have you and particularly you, but from somebody from emergency medicine on the team. And in a previous podcast that we actually hasn't come out yet, we'll be in this season where I was interviewing Yi and uh, we were talking to her about how somehow the physicians that we really end up sort of collecting are ones that are engineers by training. And then, I, well, I guess you're you're in emergency medicine, but she was mentioning that one, one of the things that happens to her is that because she's an engineer by training, she'll have patients who specifically seek her out because they are engineers and they see that she's an engineer. And I was like, what? What is wrong with engineers? <laughs> well, the other thing that, is, that you take for granted, but just having an engineering background in medicine, like the ability to do math at the bedside is something that you take for granted if you kind of grew up with that and did that in college. So 
even just that I found extremely valuable where people are surprised that we can do calculations about things. So. <laughs> <laughs> I found it helpful even in that regard. Well, that's good to hear. I'd like to think that most of the students that I train who go into medicine are able to do math. Um, <laughs> and actually on that note, I'm curious, Jim, like when you're practicing, do you think that, and again, obviously I don't want to have you put words in your colleagues' mouths, but for those that aren't trained in engineering, do you think you're thinking differently when you're seeing patients or when you're like looking at a medical device on your end? With the devices, for sure. When an approach to patients is pretty variable person to person, there's a lot of factors that go into that. So I'm not sure the engineering part is any more than anything else. And a follow-up to that, I have to ask is sort of, you know, I just was realizing, you know, a lot of the physicians we work with are engineers by training. For the times when we're not working with engineers, like what do you think we should be thinking about? Like what, you know, for fast tracks, we're looking to find unmet needs. I think we go to healthcare professionals looking for, hey, like, what are the kind of problems that you run into? Do you think there's wisdom that you could impart on those of us that are engineers when we're interacting with non-engineering physicians? That's a good question. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it, but I'm pretty sure that I think one of my limitations in, in advising is I'm always thinking of the roadblocks in the engineering solution, which is really not a great way to approach initial innovation. So I, I struggle to try to not do that. But I think somebody who has no engineering background might be a little less limited in that way. Well, to be fair, I mean, I think that's a pretty natural thing for everybody to do. Like the, you know, Tim Brown, the sort of one of the, you know, from IDEO would say, begin at the beginning, right? Like I have a tendency to like jump directly into solution space, you know? And maybe Audrey, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that too, because you're you're out in industry. Like, do you find that even engineers have a, don't always start at the beginning with uh, what is the actual root cause or the problem? Yeah, absolutely. Or even if it's just in the context of kind of ideation and coming up with ideas, there can be this dynamic where, I mean, engineers can have a tendency to be sort of know-it-alls or or cynics to a degree. (laughs) And and being the first person to identify like the weak points of someone else's concept can, it can almost be a harmful dynamic that can come up in those kinds of situations. Not saying that that happens in all cases, but people kind of want to be the the first smart one to pick out like the weakness in, in a potential idea which there's definitely a place for that. And people have to identify those eventually, but that, that can definitely happen. Yeah, I think I find that very frequently, right? You've probably heard me say the separate convergent and divergent processes. And when you're doing like brainstorming, for example, you know, I, I think I even do the same thing, right? You're like, oh, no, nah, that won't work. You know, here's the 10 reasons why it won't work. But instead, it's hard to suspend that kind of judgment till later um, sometimes. So it's interesting to hear because I think that's kind of ubiquitous. I feel like humans are tuned to efficiently make decisions. And part of that is trying to eliminate options as quickly as you can in some instances. And so... Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it seems like there'd be an evolutionary advantage to uh, not going down a path that's not going to be fruitful, where it probably does not serve us when we have a lot more time and don't have to worry about collecting berries later in the day. That's exactly right. Yeah. If you've got a bear chasing you, the last thing you want to be doing is like weighing all your options. You're like, right. (laughs) Which really is more comparable. I would think to situations in the ER. I mean, you can't, when when you have a patient that comes in, that comes in a dad, I'm sure you can't go through every single possible situation and throw up a bunch of sticky notes on the board for, for treatment. You might need to. That's a really good point, Audrey. More quickly. Yeah. Tell us about that because I'd never thought of that, or not not in that way. You have to play a really interesting role in that regard, right? There's pressure in many cases, I'm sure. Yes, I think that 
getting to a solution that works is more important when it's time critical for patients. I think, though, a lot of times what we end up doing in emergency medicine is you end up covering your bases a little bit. If somebody comes in very short of breath and it's not really clear at the beginning, you can kind of treat them for both heart failure and the heart not pumping and for a possible reactive airways disease like asthma or emphysema. So a lot of times we end up, that's one, one way we get to that solution. And then as we get more data and figure it out, we're able to tailor the therapy. Another example would be antibiotics. When somebody comes in very, very ill, we just give them the most powerful antibiotics we have because you don't want to guess wrong. And then <laughs> as we get more information, you can pare down and give them less powerful antibiotics that are more tailored and less likely to develop resistance and those sorts of things. Makes sense. I want to talk about, well, I want to go back into the the innovation space a little bit. So I'm curious to hear your your perspective, Jim, on this, because you're in a place in medicine where you see a large diversity of disease states, different patient populations, although UNC has a dedicated peds ER. In your experience, like what are the places that you're fine? Like, when do you even get a chance to sit back and say, you know, like, here's something that we could fix? It sounds to me like things are so busy. Like, what does that look like for you guys? And in the emergency department, I imagine things are a little different. Yeah, a clinical shift, it is difficult to do that. So I think probably going to need to carve out time for that. But also, you just need to raise awareness in your group and say, this is something that we need to think about because we can make it better, whether that's a device or a process. Because we are very good, I think, in medicine and in emergency medicine, especially at developing workarounds to everything that gets in our way. And then the workaround becomes what people do. I remember a long time ago, there's a device that uh, you put in a pediatric airway because they're so small, keep the kid alive. And if you didn't have it, you know, there was, uh, you take a 3cc syringe, then put a ET2. I mean, people would have these crazy ways to sort of build a device in real time when probably if you thought about it and developed something that um, was specific for that indication would be more appropriate. Of course, when you're in a resource limited place, having options is always a good idea. Yeah. And to channel one of our other engineers, Nicole, she would self-describe as a a MacGyvery kind of person. I get the impression that a lot of MacGyver-like things, but I I get the impression that you kind of do a lot of that on the fly hey, we don't have this, let's do this instead and put some stuff together. And the reason I'm asking this question though, to come back to the original, and you kind of hit it on the head, I'm curious to know what advice you would give to an emergency provider in terms of you know what they could be thinking about for device innovation or technology innovation in general. And if it's any different than what they might be already doing, as you mentioned, like carving out time and, and raising awareness, I think is something that we in Fast Tracks are trying to do for different departments at UNC. Curious to hear your perspective on the on the emergency side of things. Yeah, I think that when you're practicing, when you're just seeing patients, you know when you have the irritations or that's not the right word, or the, the obstacles that you feel like you need to overcome. I, you know, I have a friend who is an emergency doc and he just gets frustrated when he's trying to use an ultrasound machine to do a procedure. And unfortunately, there's not like scads of people available to help you all the time. So sometimes you're doing stuff by yourself or with one other person, and even something simple as having an ultrasound probe that is able to lay on a patient so it doesn't move while you're alone doing a procedure is important. So that's an idea that he had because that was an obstacle that he comes up comes up against, you know, numerous times. So I think 
that's probably the best way that I could say it for myself. <laughs> another obstacle I have is, and we've talked a little bit about this, is alarm fatigue. You know, alarms going off all the time at all times. And I, there's a lot of issues behind that. But, you know, that's something that comes up in, again and again. And again, I've created some workarounds that maybe I can't even talk about on this podcast regarding uh, alarms <laughs> in the emergency department. But I think if you take time to not just pass over when, when you have that feeling, it's like, wait a minute, if you don't have to have the ultimate solution in mind, but what is the problem? And maybe find somebody to have to work on. And then come to Fast Tracks. That's perfect. Yes. Okay. Let's shift gears a little bit. I want to head over to Audrey. We You've been silently listening there. First of all, any thoughts on what we've been talking about before I start asking more questions? Well, I just wanted to chime in on the the alarm fatigue. As, as the family member of someone with alarm fatigue, I'm very aware of the effects. <laughs> and both my brothers know, like, if you're doing any sort of activity that creates any sort of like rhythmic noise, like bouncing a ball or tapping your finger on the table. We like, it's a timer goes off. Before I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> Notice <laughs> it, but true. I mean, you're hearing beeping and sounds all day at work. So I, I, I definitely can understand that. <laughs> you know, I never thought about that, but, and I hope my wife doesn't kill me for saying this. She's the same way. My wife, it's <laughs> like, if, yeah. And I never thought about the fact that she's in a clinical setting where there's alarms going off all the time. I'm going to ask her about that and see if that might be one of the reasons. Oh, that's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Alarm fatigue is a fascinating problem because it's very complicated. And I know we in Fast Tracks have spent some time, not an insignificant amount of time, actually thinking about it and understanding it. Fundamentally, the question I think is, is less like what causes it and more, how can you mitigate the problem? in a more fundamental way than like alarms, right? Yeah. And, and getting into sort of like the industry side of things, I think it really stems from like all these different companies being totally insulated and having a very comprehensive understanding of the, the associated risks with their product and wanting to cover their bases there and saying, okay, our, our product could cause this type of harm if it's being used in a situation that, and someone doesn't realize it. So we want to make sure we're the loudest sound in the room. <laughs> And I, I work for a company right now where that's actually something that our, our, we have a generator that produces high voltage electricity. And whenever it's on, it makes very, very loud sounds. So if only there was a way for us to integrate, kind of plug into some other system that would be able to trade off between all the different pieces of equipment in the room. But that's definitely a really hard problem to solve. It's just like a, yeah, the competing or, or the sort of insulated nature of all the different products definitely makes it a hard problem, problem to solve. Yeah. And on the fast track side, we found the same exact thing on all the departments that we've talked to about alarm fatigue. When we go in to investigate, it's not just one device ever. It's also not just necessarily one physical location. You know, you've got the nursing station that has alarms too, that are connected to the devices that are in the rooms. And, you know, anybody who's ever been on the floor of a, a hospital <laughs> knows you, it's constant ringing. And we've even tried to investigate with some of the larger companies, like, hey, you know, can we get access to some of this data to even look at it? And it's just immensely complicated. And then the other side of this is like the patient safety thing you bring up. There's a liability component to it, but there's also just a patient safety thing. And, uh, you know, there's literally standards written about how you can, like the frequency of your alarm, the loudness of the alarm. So there are, there's minimum standards that have to be met for the regulatory side of things at a minimum for many devices. And as you point out, you know, everybody wants to be the loudest because you don't want to have 
your device fail and cause an injury or death. What a painful subject. (laughs) Indeed. And then the other problem with alarms is that there's such a wide array of reasons why an alarm might be going off, right? An alarm could be indicating like something critical, or it could be indicating, you know, a parameter that's just out of range that may not actually be a, a clinically relevant piece of information. So everything becomes, you know, a fire in a way. Yeah, it's, it's all about signal to noise ratio, just trying to maximize the signal to the noise. But yeah, we don't have to denigrate it to this topic because <laughs> Audrey's right. I could go on for hours. <laughs> well, it's something that I don't find people talk about. If you ask them, folks are like, oh, it's the worst. But no, not many people bring it up as unprompted in the same way that you might expect. And I think for me, it's encouraging to hear that more people are bringing it up because I think it's a problem that does need to be fixed. I just don't know who's best positioned or if it's a group. Like, Is it one of these things where the FDA needs to work with the the groups that are making the standards and the folks in industry? Need, yeah, it's a complicated problem to say the least, but back to R&D. Okay, so Audrey, you're on the, you've been on the industry side of things for a little while. Um, curious to hear your perspective. You know, I, you mentioned something that I think is really interesting on the contract manufacturing end of things. And I've had many conversations with friends of mine who do that. And it's funny, if you will, to hear how insulated the development engineers are often from the, the client or set of clients from even the clinical need is not always truly well-defined. I had a conversation just the other day with a friend of mine who described, you know, like they had people that would come to them and they knew it wasn't going to work from the beginning. Like the, the company, the consultant or the, uh, the manufacturer engineers would be like this, why are we doing this? But the customer was like, no, 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 you got to build it. And there was no thought put into like what the underlying issue was. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what it's like to be an industry and what you see. And then I sit in a weird spot. I'm in an academic center trying to do some degree of medical device design that can then be passed on to, let's say, a contract manufacturing organization. I want to pick your brain about that. But before we get there, tell us about industry. What you see is different. And maybe even from where you sit, you know, kind of like, what do you see from the clinical end of things, if anything? I think starting off in manufacturing from a career perspective was really valuable. I'll be honest, at the time, I I wasn't super happy in the position because I was always wanting to ask those questions and kind of dig in to the purpose behind design decisions or why these certain processes needed to be implemented. And really, it comes down from a business perspective. They really want to insulate those two things. They want to insulate what the device does and how it's designed from how it's made because they just want the contract manufacturers to focus on how it's made. I mean, there's IP reasons. There's lots of different reasons that they they don't really want to get into that. Now, there's definitely lots of situations in which it would be valuable as a manufacturing engineer to understand kind of what the the intent of some specific uh, requirement in like your a welding process and making sure that the weld is uniform or something like that. It's it's useful to know the the full life cycle of the product and when it's actually going to be implanted in someone, the critical components of that. But from a business perspective, it, they seem to be separated a lot. I mean, now being on the other side where I'm working for a company where we're designing products and we're not going to be manufacturing anything in-house, we're actually actively seeking out contract manufacturers. I'm now on the other side of this and where there's certain things we're disclosing, certain things we're not. And, and it seems to be kind of like a, a business strategy thing where building up a manufacturing capability in-house for a company that's just come up with an idea is it's a huge undertaking, a huge financial undertaking. And it, it kind of 
adds a lot of complications to being able to sell the product. Uh, product. So while some companies do do that, um, where they have manufacturing in-house and design in-house, and I think if you could do that right, that's the best situation because you can really get the full crosstalk and there's no kind of divide between the two. It's just a hard thing to do. And so now as a R&D engineer designing devices, I just kind of have to go research, find the contract manufacturers that already have all the equipment installed, all the technicians that have been doing these processes for years and are experts at it all ready to go. And kind of that's the best way to get a product from this sort of just feasibility base being manufactured. But the necessity of insulating certain important aspects of the manufacturing side and the design side do create some sort of friction. So it's sort of a trade-off. Yeah. I've gone through this recently with a product, actually. We <laughs> So I feel the pain of finding the right people for manufacturing. It can be very... There's such a delicate balance that has to be struck between the alignment of what the company, the what you as a company are looking for and what the manufacturer offers from every angle, right? Like intellectual property, you know, do you make this domestically or abroad? Like, uh, you know, how much control do you have? Like if you've got a quality system in place, you got to make sure you have to do qualification. You might have to audit. Uh, oh, I feel your pain. I We just finished it. Oh my God. <laughs> and production volumes too, especially if yeah. you're like in very early stage product development, you, you'll reach out to manufacturers and they want to hear thousands, tens of thousands of units a year. They want to hear those big numbers. And at first they're, they're kind of feeling you out and they'll, you'll get a lot of attention. And then they realize, oh, they're, they're <laughs> five years away from that kind of scale. So you end up getting less focused attention from these manufacturers. As a little bit of an outsider to this, is that, I mean, is, is there a mismatch? Are there too many, too many people doing the R&D and not enough manufacturing? Or is it a matter of matching up the size of the manufacturer? To, I mean, it seems like there's maybe an opportunity somewhere in there if, uh, if we're finding there's a mismatch. But I don't know if you guys have a perspective on that. I've not put much thought into that. Audrey, do you have thoughts on that? I have a couple ideas. Yeah, I mean, there are some more like incubator style contract manufacturers. And a lot of the contract manufacturers brand themselves as such. We're like, hey, we can, we do manufacturing, but we also can have do this early stage development and kind of can assist in the product development side, which this, as you're talking about mom, she does, doesn't do the manufacturing side, but she will kind of be a separate component if you're a company that's insulating the product development side. Oh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I find the same thing. So I find that when you're early on, you can you can find somebody who will do low volume and some early design stuff. The cost for that tends to be pretty high. If you're looking at millions of units or tens of thousands of units, I think the scaling is the hard part, right? Like it's Audrey, I had the same exact experience with manufacturers recently. We and I I actually talked to one a person who used to work for one of our manufacturers who's now at a different company. And, and he was like, Oh yeah, in the the sales team, we had this like back burner policy that if we, if a client meets certain set of criteria, we just put them on the back burner. And if you're back burnered, it's really hard to get off the back burner. And it was like, wow, what are you doing? And then to me, it sounded like they're just rolling in clients and they just have the luxury of being able to do that. But then also they're of course trying to make their margins. That's just one manufacturer. And obviously I don't want to characterize all, all manufacturers that way, but you're right. There's like this really intricate dance that happens early on where they're trying to feel you out and you're trying to figure out, are they the right match? And like, I can commiserate with that process just having gone through it. But Jim, I don't know the answer to your question. I think that you raise a good point. Yeah. But I just, 
where I sit in knowing some engineers, I, I hear this come up a lot. So it's probably just a natural, just natural friction. It's a little bit analogous, I think, in some ways to what I see even when I work with the BME students. And I think part of this is it makes it fresh and interesting to be like, oh, okay, we did this, this product would be worth $15 billion. And they spend like, seems like half their time analyzing how many billions of dollars they're going to make and maybe not as much time actually thinking about the product. But that's a very simplified view. But I, I think more people, especially early in your career, think about what am I doing with this thing in front of me versus I'm going to run the world and be on us. But that is one old man's perspective. On- <laughs> it's funny you say that. We're in the process right now of redoing a lot of our design curriculum to help boost the technical output a little differently because historically it was it was done but not necessarily wasn't always presented the way that I think we'd like it to be and yeah it's funny that one of the things yeah that's a, a big focus and but even back to the original comment about the mismatch I think in a way there almost are too many manufacturers and and what I mean by that is the suite of options is so huge and I can see why, right? Like manufacturers want to differentiate themselves so they have a competitive edge. And I think one of the results of that is that whether you're looking domestically or foreignly, just like globally, the number of different kinds of manufacturers and who has expertise in what is so varied. And you have to spend a long time digging through needles or digging through haystacks for needles, at least in my experience, where you might go through 10 or 20 different manufacturers before you find one that might be interesting to talk to. Or I, we had this problem recently where we wanted to scale to a volume that was really in a weird zone between sort of like high volume production, we need to get a steel like eight cavity mold and low volume production, like we can make this with an aluminum four cavity kind of like totally different scales. And, and we also had this requirement at the time of manufacturing domestically. So we were trying to find somebody who could fit into the like medium volume at a price point that worked for us and had a turnaround time that was in the window that we were looking for. And we were looking for millions of units in this particular instance. And it was like almost impossible to find somebody who could manufacture on that scale in the timeline that we're looking for. But yeah, you know, it's still an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that part of it. And I wonder if there's a better way of of matching up companies. Yeah, you, you just wonder like when we have needs for physicians or a physician needs a physician, they find a recruiter and that person kind of does a lot of legwork and finds the I'm just, you know, off the top of my head here, but there, there's some some space in the in between to try and help match up A and B. But um, obviously there's a lot of issues with intellectual property and those sorts of things. Yeah. We beat this horse to death, man. It's one of those things that like I feel like technology hasn't necessarily improved and it's just about networking and having that's the thing that somebody who's been in the industry for decades like they're going to know the 10 manufacturers that they should go to for different products and uh, there are websites with industry lists that you can go to and things like that but it doesn't really seem like there's a another way to match other than just experience yeah the rolodex and the vetting process are i mean that's basically what you are right audrey i mean to some degree like i bet you're spending a lot of time researching and looking for folks like that right yeah, I mean, and even I mean, my career is still in its infancy. But one th- one of the first things I realized just getting out of school is engineering is a lot about finding the people that know how to do the thing you need, not necessarily doing the thing yourself. And when you're coming from an academic setting, you're learning about all these things, and you're like, oh, I'm going to design a new <laughs> 
alloy to create this, that, that kind of <laughs> go into this device or kind of get into all these super hyper-technical spaces. But I mean, as an engineer, like you're don't have the time and you're not smart enough to do that. So you got to find all the people who are and, and pull it together into your device. I'm going to convert that into a piece of advice. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I think that's a trap that's really easy to fall into for anybody, not just engineers. And I'll, I'll bring this up now. I see this all the time with new innovators, providers or healthcare professionals or non-healthcare professionals. They're like, oh, I'm going to make, make the next widget. And they're trying to do that in their, in their garage or with whatever funds they can scrape together. And it's like in the time that you're going to spend doing that, somebody with the right expertise could do in a third or less of the time. And I think the bigger picture is build the right team. <laughs> That's kind of the point, right? Find the pieces of the puzzle that work together to fix the problem. And I think I will give credit to the medical professionals for you guys are really good at this. <laughs> I mean, That's okay. a good point. Yeah. In my opinion, I think medical professionals are so good at, I mean, in a way, the, the, the whole system of subspecialization in the United States kind of creates that environment, right? With a patient that comes in, you're like, okay, we need a consult from blank. You know, I think that's kind of, it's certainly not perfect, but I think it's an interesting parallel here because in the engineering world, it's easy to fall into that, like, oh, I'll just do it myself kind of trap. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You have to know enough to be able to find the person who can't fix the problem a lot of times, especially when you're a generalist. I mean, emergency medicine, family medicine, we have to know enough about a lot of different things. But then, especially at a place like UNC, I mean, we have people who deal with, just deal with the retina. I mean, that's, so that's that's a level of specialization. They're going to have some knowledge that no matter how many books you take or courses you take, you're not going to be at the level of the retina specialist, nor do you want to be. You just want to be able to identify a retina problem and get it off. Yeah. I really appreciate that about medicine. And I don't think I had that appreciation until I really got into working with physicians on the across different specialties. I think I never really understood how that whole system worked until I saw it. And I think it is a good kind of example of how different systems can come together to solve problems much faster than like one person could. I wanted to ask you, Audrey, because you've been in industry for just a couple of years. And I'm going to ask you, Jim, the same question. You know, as a person who has come from academia, at least, and has gone into industry, you know... If you were talking to somebody who's in academia and spots an unmet need in healthcare in particular, what advice might you give them, whether they're an engineer or not, doesn't matter, but like, hey, you found this problem and you might even have an idea. Like, what would you tell them? I mean, I think, and, and to try to figure out where you can take that idea and, and pull it into development. I know we kind of started off this conversation talking about not, not striking down ideas too early on, but if you're at the stage where you're trying to figure out whether this idea can develop into a product, I think it's kind of would be important to just step through that entire process and kind of just think of the different boxes that are going to need to be checked along the way. I mean, we already talked about contract manufacturing, who's going to make it, even if you're looking for kind of like a more design services type situation that you might have a pretty fleshed out idea, but you still need to get drawings and CAD put together. And then think about how what regulatory approach you're going to take, which is the hardest thing to do if, if you haven't done it before. And I, I have just barely dipped my toes in that in my current position, but it is an enormous, I mean, my company spends an enormous amount of time like developing strategy with respect to that. 
and it's not necessarily the most interesting topic to talk about, at least at the early stages, but it's an important one to consider when you have an initial concept. So pretty generalist advice, but I just make sure like kind of finding the different people along the way that could help you develop the product along every stage is important, especially when you're just kind of starting with an idea. Sage wisdom. Jim, I'm curious to hear (laughs) (laughs) on the physician side of things, you know, as a person who you see on many needs all the time and you interact with us, the engineers, what would your advice be to a provider or a healthcare professional that spots an unmet need? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think I'm in a unique position um, being married to a product development engineer (laughs) and having access to engineers on campus. Having said that, it's still not easy to think about how you're going to change something fundamental to the practice of medicine. If you're not in my unique situation, that's, I mean, honestly, I think that's a tough one. I think if you have a university that's near you that has a medical school, there is likely some group that is interested in solving problems. I, of course, would advocate that you contact UNC and maybe uh, Devin Hubbard. But um, <laughs> I know a guy. I, think where, <laughs> I know a guy. I think if you uh, if you do enough, you know, obviously we have the ability to search people out much much easier these days. I think you'd be able to find the group at least you could bounce something off of. I think that's great advice. I mean, I I have maybe a little bit of a skin in the game on that one, but that, you know, <laughs> anybody's always welcome to shoot us an email over at, uh, at Fast Tracks. So great suggestions, everybody. Well, thank both of you for coming onto the podcast today. I've really enjoyed talking to you guys and catching up a little bit. Audrey, it's been a long time since we've spoken, so it's been fun. And I'll definitely look to get both of you back on the podcast at some point in the future. But thank you guys very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Evan. This is great. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. All righty. Yeah, we'll talk to you guys soon. We hope you enjoyed today's episode on medical device innovation from industry and clinical perspectives. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, please send a message to guidewire at unc.edu. Follow us on Twitter at GuidewirePod. For more content like this, consider subscribing to the Guidewire podcast on your favorite streaming service. As always, I'm your host, Devin Hubbard, and we will talk to you next time. Learn more about our exciting activities, opportunities, and team by subscribing to the Guidewire podcast on your favorite listening service. If you have identified an unmet medical need or are interested in learning more about our process, visit us at guidewire.unc.edu. You have been listening to Guidewire, a direct line to medical device innovation.